Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 135, and we're going to continue a train of thought and teaching that we began back in 134. It might involve a little bit of exhortation. If I were in the military today, I would, I would be functional as a bombardier releasing the bombs. We're going to drop another one today, I think, spiritually speaking, of course, but this is an exhortation, and what is being prevented in this section, we've seen it really subdivided between 5.11 to 6.12 and 6.13 to 6.20, so really the whole section is bracketed between 5.11 and 6.20. This whole section is an important preparation for the advanced doctrine of not only the advanced doctrine, the advanced insight of Jesus Christ as the Melchizedekan priest, but the implications of what that insight is, the implications of that insight to our spiritual lives, even now in the 21st century, because it's just as vital and just as important and crucial as it was for the initial readers and hearers in the first century. So with that in mind, we'll open with prayer. And Father, we thank you for this open door, a door that you've opened. We've passed through it by faith with the intention of concentrating and attending upon your word. And we ask that we will have the grace to receive the good seed on good ground and that it may bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold from all of us as listeners today. So we entrust our spirit to you now, and may grace be with our spirits throughout this lesson, through this, throughout this increment of study of the Hebrews, the uh, letter to the Hebrews. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now I want to start with taking a somewhat unplanned, at least it was initially unplanned, side path. And we spoke of this side path before as the road to Emmaus, to be precise. Consider once again, as we did in the last increment, but with a little different slant this time, the sadness of the disciples who walked along the road to Emmaus and who were joined by a stranger who asked a reason for their sadness. Consider and picture the explanation that they had for their sadness, and I'll paraphrase it. Well, we pinned all of our hopes on a man whom we assumed to be our Messiah, but he was rejected and crucified. They were sad because they didn't realize that the very act of the crucifixion of Jesus defined him as their Messiah, as his resurrection revealed him as the Son of God. These disciples were inattentive and slow to believe all that the prophets had said about a suffering Messiah. Didn't they pay attention to Isaiah 40 through 55, that whole section called Deutero-Isaiah about the suffering servant? I don't know. If they did read it, they weren't attentive enough to it because they were inattentive to believe what the prophets said about a suffering Messiah who precisely would enter into his glory through suffering and through death. 
Because they were inattentive to the prophetic word, they were unintelligent where it counted the most and unreasonable in their sadness. And doesn't this fit just about everybody everywhere? Because we're inattentive to the prophetic word, we become unintelligent where it really counts in life and where it counts forever. And we become unreasonable in our sadness and sometimes even unreasonable in our joy. We get happy about the wrong things. Like James said, howl and cry out and mourn, you rich people. Not that he was against rich people, but they were rejoicing in their earthly riches, which were about to vanish. So we rejoice about the wrong things, and that means we rejoice unreasonably. And we, are, we mourn about the wrong things, and that means we mourn unreasonably. And so it's all because we're unintelligent where it counts, because we've been inattentive to the word of God. And we've said before, and I'll say it again today, often the Lord comes alongside us and joins us when we're on the road to some place that we'd be better off not going to. Now these recipients of the Hebrews homily were in a similar situation. Even though they were far more educated than the sad and slow to believe disciples on Emmaus Road. They had believed in Jesus as their Messiah, and that's what I mean by more educated, and had indeed confessed him to be the Son of God, raised from the dead, and even exalted to the right side of God above the heavens. They even knew that Jesus had died for their sins and had somehow in his death he'd made purification for sins. But they were sad because they had not realized that in the act of purifying their sins, though he was not a high priest or even priest at all in the order of Levi, that he was altogether higher order of archpriest, and they were unaware of that, that he was an altogether higher order of archpriest than they. They had no doubt been told that Jesus was not a high priest. And the reasoning was because he was not of the tribe of Levi. And you can't argue against that. He was not of the tribe of Levi. And he was therefore disqualified from being a Levitical priest or a priest after the order of Aaron. They were told then that Jesus wasn't a high priest because he couldn't be after the order of Levi. So the writers saying, right. That's true, all the way through. He could not have been a priest after the order of Levi. But I got something to tell you. When God said, sit at my right hand until I make my en your enemies a footrest for your feet to a certain person whom you know to be Jesus, he also said, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek to the same person. So yes, he's a priest, not after the inferior order of Levi, but after a superior order, which is the Melchizedekan order, we could say. That's the point in Hebrews. They had no doubt been told that Jesus, their Savior, whom they, call, they called their Messiah, was not a high priest because he was 
not of the tribe of Levi. So what the pastor teacher is doing for them is showing them that their crucified, risen and exalted Lord Jesus is actually superior and a superior archpriest, not like Aaron or Levi, Aaron's grandson, but like Melchizedek of Genesis 14 and Psalm 109.4, Septuagint fame. His is a transcendent priesthood. His sacrifice is infinitely more significant and, in fact, unrepeatable. Consequently, they were not missing out at all, the PT wants to tell them. They weren't missing out at all by not participating in the Levitical rituals and offerings. Moreover, they were not liable as they assumed they were or as they were charged with being. They were not, in fact, liable to severe divine judgment and fiery vengeance by a failure to participate in those Levitical rites and sacrifices. In fact, that fiery judgment that their enemies wanted them to be dread in dread of, that fiery judgment was actually coming on the temple in which these very temple sacrifices were still being offered by the old and abrogated order of priests and of the archpriest of the now divinely defunded order. God defunded the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. They just didn't know it yet. He put all of his funds into the Melchizedekan priesthood. So we have to imagine Hebrews as a homily to be read aloud, and that's exactly what it is. It's not even right to say this is the letter to the Hebrews. It's a homily, but it's in a letter that I think was endorsed and even dispatched by Paul, as we learned in a recent treatment of Estheus's hypothesis. So we have to imagine Hebrews as a homily to be read aloud and that the public reader would enunciate it with all the required modulations and changes of volume and tone that are necessary to convey the author's intent. Phoebe was evidently a genius at this. She was the one who delivered the dispatch in which was contained the Romans, the epistle of Paul to the Roman saints. She was evidently the one who would read it in a public gathering of the saints in Rome. She was apparently a master of reading his epistles and knowing exactly when to raise her voice, lower the volume, modulate the tone, because she knew Paul. She knew his intent. She knew the message. And so someone would have to read Hebrews in the public assembly, maybe more than once. There are different tones required for exposition and exhortation. Though there is never the need, never the need, never the need for the lack of moderation in emotion by the preachers, male and female, lose control in the pulpit when they try to use the pulpit as a sounding board for their own emotional deficiencies, failures, and impotencies, 
and failure to realize their own spiritual growth. So they use the pulpit as a, a, a means of a sounding board, or they use it to become, to ride on a moral high horse and charge them with all kinds of terrible things. While they're doing the same things and just would never admit it and always hide it well. But so there's never a reason or a need for a lack of moderation of emotion in the preacher or the reader. Jesus, the Lamb of God, must have been a soft-spoken teacher, generally speaking. He nevertheless spoke with authority in the days of his flesh. He described himself as meek and lowly in heart, and meek does not mean Casper Milktoast meek. Meek, in fact, is another word for courage blended with courtesy and kindness and soft-spokenness. He described himself as meek and lowly in heart in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. But this did not mean that he never spoke with vehement passion on occasion. And as seen in Matthew 23, especially, you should read that sometime straight through, where he lambasted the appalling hypocrisy of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the so-called experts of the Mosaic law, who loaded heavy burdens on their congregations while never lifting a finger to help them and bear, help them bear these burdens by teaching about grace. And Jesus blasted the blind leaders who were leading their blind followers into a historical disaster which Jesus referred to as the ditch called Gehenna. Woe to you blind guides and blind followers you lead, you both end up into the ditch. And he meant Gehenna. He was referring to the A.D. 70 catastrophe. Now here's a principle for you. When a soft-spoken man raises his voice, one tends to listen more attentively than when a loud man speaks loudly or when a hysterical man flies off the handle. You just say, there he goes again. One is more likely to be attentive to a usually quiet or soft-spoken woman when she speaks emphatically than to a woman who's characteristically hysterical. When she gets hysterical, you say, there she goes again. There's no surprise in it. But when she's a quiet woman and a soft-spoken woman and she speaks loudly or emphatically, you listen. That's the way my mother was. She was a very quiet and gracious and very soft-spoken and lowly-minded person. She was sweet and humble. So when she raised her voice, I listened because she was never hysterical, never saw her for a hysterical moment. And if she ever had times of fear, she didn't show it to the children. And God is kind of like that. God is, well, he's never hysterical, but God is not the type of parent that rewards all the kids equally, even though one or two of them might be a punk or a brat. He doesn't do that. He's not the kind of coach that gives a trophy to everybody, including the person that only showed up for practice once. There are crowns of righteousness and crowns of life and shows of divine approval for those who do the work, if I may say it, of intelligent and attentive grasp of the word of God and who hold the hope of the gospel till the end. So 
I'm speaking here as an admitted Christ supremacist. And the Bible is all about Christ supremacy. And the writer to the Hebrews is a Christ supremacist. He speaks boldly about Christ's supremacy and superiority over angels, including the archangels. He speaks plainly and bluntly of Christ's supremacy over Moses, over Joshua, over Aaron, over the temple sacrifices with his own self-offering by which he took away the sin of the world. Now, speaking of being attentive, and that's what the writer is doing here, it's also beneficial not only to review the categories of conversion, which we did briefly in 134, but also to briefly list the transcendent precepts that Lonergan developed. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, be in love. Years ago, I took these five transcendent precepts and developed them into a pretty extensive series of Bible teachings and just didn't even touch the surface then. These five principles can become a series by any pastor teacher anywhere and be quite extensive or by any parent anywhere to their children teaching these five transcendent precepts with biblical examples can be the most profitable thing you've ever taught your children. So these transcendent precepts can be, these are actually called transcendent precepts because they are precepts for transcendent living, the kind of living by which a person transcends themselves, transcends their old horizons, transcends their old dispositions and attitudes and self-destructive attitudes, to be sure. This can be illustrated then in endless ways in the scripture and with application to theology and, in fact, to all science and disciplines and learning. But most of all, it can be applied to our livingness as Christians. For what is called the Christian life or the Christian spiritual life, and a lot of things are called that today that aren't that, but what is called the Christian life or the Christian spiritual life is precisely the application of these transcendent precepts to a life lived by the grace of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with the triune God. And that's 2 Corinthians 1.12, we live by the grace of God, the grace that comes from the throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16, strengthens the heart in Hebrews 13.9. It's a life in which the self is transcended, the old self put off, the new self put on, and life is lived as a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus and outside of oneself by the power of the Spirit of grace, who is the same Spirit who is the Spirit of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. This Christian life is called a putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews, make that Romans 13, 14. So we wear him. When I used to be stupid enough to take the time to watch the Oscars, which was a waste of time, and it gets more and more to be a waste of time because here they go congratulating themselves again and wearing fancy clothes while they do it. One of the things that 
they always used to do beforehand, which used to chap me a little bit, is that their men and women would stand on this red carpet glorifying themselves and some idiot from some gossip network would come up and interview them and say, who are you wearing? Not what are you wearing, who are you wearing? Now, because I don't know the name of many designers, I mean, I'd probably say Wrangler and, uh, or something like that, L.L. Bean. How's that one? That's a New England thing. So, but they'll say something like, um, I don't know, Calvin Klein, somebody like that. And uh, some female designer, though, I'm wearing her, I'm wearing him. Well, we're wearing Jesus Christ. We're wearing him because we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We wear him because our identities are found in him. We participate in his fidelity, his faithfulness, his love, his life by the Holy Spirit. So the Christian way of living is the putting on of our Lord Jesus Christ. We wear him. In that life, one makes no provision, no room to be pre-moved by the desires of the flesh. And by the desires of the flesh, we don't just mean the desires of our own fleshly nature. The flesh there is an enemy, a, a, an apocalyptic-style enemy that wants us to dance to the tune of the zeitgeist, the present evil age. And that primarily, the primary lust that it wants to make us captive of is our own self-exaltation, our own self-promotion our showing ourselves to be better than others, maybe by wearing such and such a designer or winning a little gadget that we can put on our mantle because we pretended to be somebody else for an hour. Now, forgive me if I'm a little testy about the Oscars. I don't really care for them that much. But in any case... We wear the Lord Jesus Christ in a spiritual life in which the desires of the flesh have no room. We have no room to exalt ourselves because we hold Jesus Christ in the ultimate supremacy and preeminence in our lives. The foundational transcendental precept for higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus happens to be attentiveness. Recently, our friend in Waco, Texas, Pastor Mark Whitmer, did a wonderful message in which he centered on this theme called attentiveness. And I was pleased to listen to it and edified mightily by that. Great job, Pastor Whitmer. The foundational transcendental precept for higher the higher integration of Living, human living in Christ Jesus is attentiveness, especially attentiveness regarding Christ's supremacy and preeminence. The whole subject of Colossians and Ephesians and Hebrews and really the New Testament and really the scriptures. This has already been highlighted in the warning against drifting away from what the addressees had previously heard and the warning against neglect of so great a salvation, the salvation that God has already wrought in Christ, in Hebrews 2.3. The urgent necessity 
of attentiveness was strongly accentuated and at length in Hebrews 3.7 all the way through Hebrews 4.13 where the urge, urgency is toward being attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks through the scriptures. Namely, in that case, Psalm 95, 7 through 11, Septuagint 94, 7 through 11, with the example of the Exodus generation or the desert generation and the consequences of their inattentiveness to God and to Moses, his delegated representative and their human deliverer. The note of the urgent need of attentiveness continues unabated throughout the homily. It even receives renewed impetus toward the end in Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. Even Hebrews 13, 17 commands attentiveness near the very conclusion of the epistle, where the PT insists on their yielding to their leaders, those who watch over their souls and who must give an account for them. Without attentiveness to the voice of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, there is no development of real intelligence. Real intelligence is the operative mind of Christ in his disciples. Attentiveness requires prioritization. It requires giving singular importance to the word of God. It requires a commitment to biblical truth and to making time for undistracted biblical instruction. Spiritual development is arrested by inattentiveness, by a nonchalant attitude to Bible teaching. Prolonged inattentiveness leads to regression, spiritual regression. Regression to rebellion. Inattentiveness blocks spiritual progress and leads to drifting off course and susceptibility to control by malevolent and not benevolent powers, to subtle deception and accommodation of the dictates of the spirit of the evil age who wants us to, quote, embrace his supervision. When the Communist Chinese Party wants to euphemize their thought control and brainwashing of people, they say, oh, such and such a person is embracing supervision. Yeah. And we have people that want to turn the United States of America into a concentration camp that embraces the supervision of breathlessly incompetent governmental bureaucrats. That's where we are today. Excuse my social comment, but I can say whatever I want because I'm over 70 now. All right. The PT, pastor teacher, had begun an exposition of the Melchizedekan priesthood of Jesus, the Son of God. He began it. The exposition comes under the category of advanced doctrine, founded on an advanced insight into the essential truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. This writer can say, along with Paul, 
I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You say, yeah, but his whole, thi his whole shtick is about Jesus being the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek. Right. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek for the age. There is no spiritual advance without advanced insights which constitute mature words or doctrines. The insight regarding Jesus being a unique and supreme archpriest for the age like Melchizedek does not involve a doctrine that's divorced from the indispensable theme of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Rather, his archpriesthood after the order of Melchizedek or just like Melchizedek is an essential elaboration of that theme. And therefore, it is an homage to the theme of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The hearers of this homily need this insight then and today. And they, we, need to be attentive to it. It is the insight that, if attended to, will enter into the texture of our mind and profoundly impact us to the good. All divinely given insights are intended to enter into the texture of the mind to become permanent and become motivators and pre-movers to action and deeds that are, and words for that matter, that are beneficent, benevolent, so that we become agents of beneficence and benevolence to others around us and to our generation. And so it is this insight that will save these listeners from an action that would lead to what William L. Lane identifies as something that, quote, could entail a return to Jewish convictions and practices, as well as the public denial of faith in Christ under pressure from a magistrate or a hostile crowd simply for personal advantage. Now, I know that Lane intended nothing against Jewish convictions and practices here, but what he meant was the temptation was to return to Judaism and its practice of the temple sacrifices under the presumption that doing so will remove the stigma from your life and the Christian stigma from your social setting. And so the danger here of being inattentive is an eventual return to abrogated practices that you had disowned under your initial enlightenment. And to do so in order to engage the approval of your peers or because of a fear of a magistrate who might hand you over for discipline or even jail time. Now this view is also akin to the view of Kenneth Wiest in his exegesis of Hebrews. He averred that the readers were in danger of returning to the temple sacrifices. And it is my contention that the impetus to return to these temple sacrifices, which would in fact constitute an act of apostasy, and Hebrews 6 will deal with whether it's impossible to be restored from that act of apostasy. But that would consist of an act of apostasy largely 
under the false accusation against them that they lacked an archpriest. Under the exceeding pressure of the fact that they had no archpriest, they would receive much more impetus to want to go back to where there was an archpriest offering sacrifices for them. So, consequently, the insight of Jesus as a superior great archpriest is a saving insight, saving them from apostasy. That's why Timothy was told to immerse himself in the scriptures and in the word of God, especially the New Testament revelation that came through Paul, so that he could progress and so that he could save both himself and his congregation from apostasy. 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16 kind of tells that story. So the first illumination of the Hebrews had occurred decades before the writing of this homily in Hebrews 10.32. That first act of enlightenment imparted to them tremendous spiritual momentum, so much so that they were even able to cheerfully undergo the confiscation of their property, knowing that they have a more enduring possession in future world. It seems that the initial fervency, though, in that initial enlightenment, which we might call the insight of the finished work of Christ, that insight and that fervency had cooled some by now. Now the PT prepares them for a new act of enlightenment that would carry them to completion. That is, by completion, the realization, even in time, of the blessedness that's promised to those who endure. Lane, William Lane, again, page 144 of his first volume, of his Hebrew study. He said the motivating concern behind the extended exhortation in Hebrews 5:11 to 6:12 is expressed in a purpose clause in verse 12. Hina me nothroi genesti mimitai de. And that's what I put in the title of 134 at least, maybe even this one too. And it means so that you will not become sluggish, but imitators. And that's imitators of those who inherit the promises. This goes all the way back for us in Tetelestai Phalanx, if you've been following my teachings for the past couple of years. This goes back to DLT, Doing and Living Theology, Lesson 1, where we dealt with Ephesians 5.1, where, where we're told to become imitators, mimetai, of God. And all that that means. Lane again, page 146, he says, To repudiate Christ would entail unbelief and the radical disobedience that makes inevitable the imposing of the curse sanctions of the covenant, which we'll read about in Hebrews 6 8. That we do not choose, or that we do not choose the impossible but that we enjoy the perfection freely given to us in Christ is the sum of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. That's a pretty good summation of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, a very difficult passage in itself. He says it again. Again, he says that we do not choose the impossible, but that we enjoy the perfection freely given to us in Christ is the sum of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. So as we... wind down to a close in increment 135, I'll say this. Insights are sent to motivate us and to save us from spiritual lethargy. 
and the results of spiritual lethargy, which can be tragic. Our history as an assembly, for example, and I'm speaking of Tetelestai Phalanx, began in the 20th century with the insight of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's taken a quantum leap forward in the 21st century, first with the insight of the Israel of God, which we recently revisited, and then a quantum leap forward again with the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his finished work or the cross of Christ. In all cases, momentum resulted from insight. For those who stayed in there and hung in there through adversity and through thought testing and a lot of other testing, then great spiritual momentum resulted. And you can say that to yourself and know that's true for yourself if you've hung in there. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, therefore, is where we find ourselves exactly right now in this exegesis. And this is my translation from the Greek text with bracketed commentary. We have a lot to say about this assertion. What assertion? You are a priest forever, an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, an archpriest for the age after the order of Melchizedek. That's the assertion of God, the designation of Jesus as archpriest by the Father in Psalm 110.4, Greek text 109.4. So we have a lot to say about this assertion, this designation of Jesus as archpriest. This oracle, which happens to be, and this is extremely important to our interpretation, this oracle was preceded by an oath. And we're going to find out that at the end of this larger section in Hebrews 6.18, there are two immutable things that are at the basis of our hope. Two immutable things that God can't lie about. One, his oath, and two, the oracle or the promise. The oath, I swear, the Lord says, the Lord swore and will not retract. There's the oath. You are a priest forever. There's the oracle. There's the promise. A priest for the age. That's a promise to us that our salvation is secure in the great arch priest. Now, we have a lot to say about this assertion, he says in verse 11, hard to articulate. That is, the teacher has a hard time articulating it in such a way as to make it intelligible to you. The reason he finds it hard is because of this, since you've become sluggish in listening, apathetic, nonchalant, casual, call it whatever you want. And I wish I could grab people by the shoulders in this pandemic time and shake them a little bit that are not being serious about the word of God during this time, during this past year, during this present time. You're serious about a whole lot of other things, but not the most important thing. You think you're smart about a lot of things, but you're not intelligent where it really counts and where the intelligence counts for time and for the next life to come. So wake up. ATR, his name is A.T. Robertson, I call him ATR in my notes. He has an interpretive verse, an interpretive passage here. Hard of interpretation, he says, is a late and rare verbal compound of the Greek preposition dus, D-U-S, or prefix, and hermeneuo, where we get our word hermeneutics. 
He says it's found in Diodorus and Philo, and only here in the New Testament is this word found. Deus er minutos, difficult to articulate. Hard to explain, he says, because of the strange, to the Jews, line taken. In other words, these Jewish Christians would initially find this strange, what he's teaching, so it's hard to teach. But still more difficult because of their dullness. Dull of hearing. Nothroi tais akoes, he says. Dull of hearing. It's an old adjective, he says, this nothroi. And it's found also in other papyri or other sources of Greek. From the negative ne, any, and otheo, O-T-H-E-O, means to push. And so to push in the hearing, there's no push in the hearing. They're slow and sluggish in mind as well as in the ears. And he mentions again that it's only found here in Hebrews 5.11 and 6.12. It means to be slack or sluggish. And Plato called some of his students nothroi, and by that he meant stupid. You are stupid, he said. You've become stupid. Imagine saying that today in the sensibilities and hypersensitivities that we have today, where if you even look at somebody askance, you could be sued. So, in closing, number two, again, nothroi, N-O-T-H-R-O-Y, which is our kind of catchword for these past two increments, nothroi, appears both here, 5.11 and and 6.12, where the PT says, so that you won't become nothroi. That's the whole reason for this interlude. So that you won't become or remain nothroi, but rather mimetai. Instead of nothroi, I want you to be mimetai. This reminds me of when we were very little children and we watched some uh, cartoon and there was this elementary school teacher and she would tell her children, don't be a don't be and do be a do be or whatever it was. A don't be was a nothroi and a do be is a mimetai, mimetai. And that means imitator. It means to have an imitation in the sense of Follow the lead of faith heroes like we find in Abraham in 6.13 to 20 and like we find in the catalog or chronicles of faith heroes in Hebrews 11.4 to 40. A very brief but effective chronicle of faith heroes throughout history. Again, Nothroi then appears both here in 6.12, which kind of brackets a subsection. Nothroi never become Teleoi, that's another subject we're going to get into down the road again. Teleoi, T-E-L-E-I-O-I, means mature ones, graduates of God's school, the school of Christ. Nothroi don't become teleoi. They don't become completed. They don't become rewardable. Nothroi don't become teleoi. And therefore, they don't become mimetic, M-I-M-E-T-I-C, of those who inherit the promise of blessedness in this life by realizing a completion that is on the fifth level of consciousness. And I want you to remember, again, this is kind of an homage to R.M. Duran, who passed 
into the presence of the Lord this past January. His thesis 20 from the Trinity in History, Volume 1, about the fifth level of consciousness, because it is exactly on that level that God intends the church of the firstborn to operate. This is where we're headed in time. We're headed to this level of consciousness so that we can be truly expressive of what a messianic community is in this world, a lampstand that doesn't need to be taken away by the Son of Man. Here's Thesis 20, in which the fifth level of consciousness is defined. This is what we're pressing toward by holding our confession, holding fast to our confession. Here it is. He says, the social dimensions of grace are rooted in a level of consciousness that is beyond the four levels of experience, understanding, judgment, and decision, and that sublates them. That means experience, understanding, judgment, and decision are all part of this life, but sublated into a higher life or integrated into a higher life. This unitive and inclusive level of consciousness is interpersonal, and when self-transcendent, it is marked by love in intimacy, in devotion to human community, in reception of God's love, and in return of love for God in charity. The functional specialty horizons will include this dimension in its mediated subject. That's something we would need to explicate and expand more, but the point is that's the end to which we're pushing, that level of consciousness in time, which also is indicative of and denotes reward in the eternal state. So Nothroi are not prepared for the optimal forward momentum that derives from the insight and implications of the Melchizedekan archpriesthood of Jesus. Let me say that again. That's my principle. Nothroi are not prepared for the optimal forward momentum that derives from the insight and the implications of the Melchizedekan archpriesthood of Jesus. So once again, Hebrews 5.11. We have a lot to say about this assertion meaning God's designation of Jesus as archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. This is an oracle preceded by an oath in Psalm 110.4, and it relates to Hebrews 6.18. That's all coming down the road. Hard to articulate in such a way as to make it intelligible, though, since you've become sluggish in listening, dull, nonchalant, apathetic, indifferent, whatever you want to call it. In Hebrews 6.11, that's the other side of this subsection. I want to close with that today, and I will actually close. Closing number three, Hebrews 6.11. We want very much, and I can say this with my same heart as this writer. We want very much for every one of you to demonstrate the same earnestness till the ultimate realization of your hope so that you won't be nothroi, sluggish, but imitators, mimetai, of those who through faithfulness and patience now possess what was promised them. In other words, there's a whole catalog of heroes who did hold fast their confidence till the end of their lives and who now, in future world, already experience what was promised them. He wants the same for you. I want the same for you, for every one of you. 
This in turn, therefore, anticipates the chronicle of the faith heroes who are worthy of mimesis, to anglicize it, mimesis. Hebrews 11, 4 through 40. Thank you, Father, for another exhortation. Both negative, not to become nothroi, and positive, to become mimetai, of those who inherit the promises and those who receive divine approval. We want each and every one of us to be of that latter category and to avoid at all costs the category of being lazy and sluggish in response to the word of God. Thank you, Father. Grant us grace and may the grace of God be with your spirit. Amen.